Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello everyone, I'm John Edge and this is Skylines, the Cinemetric Podcast. You know, something that I feel guilty about is that I really don't know very much about food. I I, I like food, I eat far too much food, frankly, uh, but I, I, I don't cook, I don't really know where food comes from, and I have this kind of sneaking suspicion that just maybe the planet isn't going to be capable of providing us with enough of it. So anyway, I was on Twitter, where I generally am. If you know anything about me, you'll know I'm basically a Twitter account with a human being hanging off the back at this point. When I spotted a, a, a thread about farming and agriculture, which I found absolutely fascinating. It was posted by uh, an American agricultural scientist called Dr. Sarah Tabor, and she explained at length how sustainability in, in farming is, is, is it's not quite what we think it is, and actually is a much more complicated... Well, I'm going to read you some extracts, actually. In one tweet, she said, Lots of cultures have used low or no meat diets. The Ganges Valley, ancient Egypt, China, much of early Europe. Notice anything in common there? They're all very, very wet. Plants that are edible for humans grow readily. They also had intense hierarchies where elites could just tell the lower classes they weren't allowed to eat meat, whether via religious teachings, custom, or just straight-up economic exploitation. But that's a whole different story. On the other hand, lots of cultures have used mostly or all animal diets. The Bedouin, Mongols, Maasai, Inuit. What do these have in common? They're places that are very dry or very cold. Either the plants that grow are very sparse and tough, or there are none at all. She goes on to explain how, you know, in certain climates where you can only grow these kind of scrubby plants, people can't live, grow crops. People can't live off the, the, the grasses that grow. But what they can do is they can farm animals that live off those things and then eat the animals. And this is like a proper sort of mind-blown moment for me. Like, I'd never considered any of this. And I was just thinking, God, I'd love to have a conversation with this woman. And then I remembered, I've got a podcast. My name is Dr. Sarah Tabor. I am a crop scientist. And I just do a lot of freelance agricultural work because that's a that's a thing that a lot of folks do in the ag industry. Some food safety consulting, some food safety auditing. And I came from a crop science background and I'm doing my darndest to get back to that. <laughs> for, for those who may not may not be aware, what does what does crop science involve? Is it literally just kind of the science of, of uh, agriculture? So basically, I'm a veterinarian for crops. I actually got a lot of feedback from this thread that we're kind of following up on about cattle about how it was a shill for the livestock industry, which is really funny because most of my work is actually in indoor agriculture <laughs> with lettuce. Uh, so you're in the pocket of big lettuce. 
Ah. Big lettuce, yeah. So if there's shilling I've been doing, I, I should really call someone with writing the checks for, for yeah. that. So bring that to the attention. <laughs> okay, so yeah, the, as, as, as you intimated, the reason... I wanted to get you on the podcast was because you, you posted this, this fascinating thread on Twitter explaining the relationship between climate and water and human diet, motivated, I think, in part by the sort of the, an often heard, uh, claim that vegetarian diets are more, are more sustainable. What, what was it that kind of, that kind of set you off on what, what record were you trying to set straight here? I guess is the question. Oh. So again, I'm a crop scientist, right? So I'm, I'm never going to tell people don't eat plants, right? Cause <laughs> that's my thing. What, what does come up is that not every piece of land is suitable for crops, right? And that's where the information can kind of get confused is yes, having more plants and less meat in your diet generally is a good call, but that doesn't mean every single piece of land should be used to grow crops. You see, there's like a there's a bit of a translation there, and that often gets missed by folks who learned everything they know about agriculture from like Michael Pollan, the author of, of Cooks, among other things, right? Yeah. So in the U.S., we had the Dust Bowl, right? So that was a situation in the 1930s where um, the United States had been basically buying people's votes for a long time by giving them free land homesteads. Um, it was kind of the colonization process. We passed the Homestead Act. They said, you know, if you just go and live on a piece of land for five years, it's yours. And here's our legal process for deeding it to you and everything. That was how politicians got votes was giving out free land. Um, and it was kind of this machine that you couldn't stop. And people had some really faulty beliefs about climate as well. They truly believed that rain follows the plow. That was a big saying back then. So it worked out fine when they were doing this in you know, the Northeast and the Midwest and the South because there was a very wet regions. But as people started making homesteads in the southern Great Plains, you know, like Texas, New Mexico, Oklahoma, they believed that if they plowed the soil, it would rain. Like it really soil from the water made clouds and it would rain. So they basically moved into deserts, started ripping up the native vegetation that was there. By the way, most deserts actually do have a lot of vegetation. It's not all straight dunes. You know, so there's a lot of sagebrush, there's a lot of arid grasses and that kind of thing. So they just went in there, ripped them all up, planted wheat, and it never grew. As a result of that, you have a lot of soil that's exposed, and it's a very dry, windy area. And so we had dust storms that just, like, covered the entire continent. They would start in New Mexico and Texas and Oklahoma and just bull east. Um, we had black clouds covering Washington, D.C. That's a long way east. Yeah. Um, they didn't really believe it was happening until a dust cloud landed on them, and then some legislation got passed to change some of these policies pretty quick. So, so that was our experience, you know, trying to grow crops everywhere. And we've tried that, and it doesn't work out. We also have some spots currently in the Great Plains. We're growing wheat with fossil water that's going to run out. But these places had native grasses that survived really well in the low rainfall that they have. We had huge herds of bison. So that's an area where it makes a lot more sense to grow livestock than it does to grow crops. And that's okay. This was one of the things I found really fascinating about that, that thread. It's just the idea that like there are climates in which... If, if human beings want to kind of generate food calories, it makes more sense to kind of farm animals and then eat the animals than it does to, to, to farm crops, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm looking at this from the perspective of a crop scientist, actually. You know, livestock are kind of a secondary consideration that we have there to manage the grass. And the best way to turn it into something that's edible for humans is to put it through an animal first. Uh, grass is a very unique plant. If you look at something like a bush or a tree, all the buds and all the sensitive parts of the plant are above ground. So if fire goes by or if an animal chews them off, plant's kind of stuck. 
you know, th- those can be difficult plants uh, to have a lot of livestock pressure on. But if you look at grass, they're really basically built to be eaten by, by livestock, right? So the, the part that grows is very close to the ground or it's underground. And so when an animal comes and eats a grass, it's only eating the leaves. It's, it's like, it's only a flesh wound. And unlike trees and bushes, grass leaves are kind of built to be disposable and they die off after a while. And if something doesn't either come and burn them off like a fire or eat them, the grass gets kind of choked up. So it's actually not healthy for grasses to be left alone to their own devices. They need something to come and take off some of their vegetation every so often. So it's a symbiotic relationship. Yeah, so that's that makes them a little bit unique. And keep in mind that grasslands cover about a third of the Earth's surface. And some of those grasslands are wetter, and they're a great place to grow crops. And a lot of our crops are grasses, but they tend to be grasses that need a wetter environment to really thrive. A lot of them are also arid grasslands. We might consider kind of semi-desert, there's steppe. And there's also a lot of scrublands where they have things more like sagebrush, uh, juniper, and, and kind of your more bushy scrub plants, which need to be managed slightly differently. But if you manage them properly, you'll get more grass as opposed to scrub. So that's how grass functions. Most of what grass is made of is cellulose. There's some liquid, there's some protein, there's some sugars, but most of it's cellulose. Um, that's the structural kind of tissue of the plant. And humans can't digest that. There's only a few specialized animals that can, so you have ruminant livestock, you know, just ruminants in general. Termites can digest it, which is why they're always eating wood. They can digest what wood is made of. Dung beetles can digest cellulose that's in ruminant poop, so that's what they're after, actually. So again, it's only a few specialized animals that can digest cellulose. The way that ruminants do it is there are actually bacteria that break it down, and they host them in their stomachs, so that's why cattle have these giant digestive systems. It's like a 50-gallon barrel in there. It's a giant fermentation chamber that holds a lot of plant material, host bacteria that break it down, and then the cow can use those breakdown products to live on them. And humans can't do that. Our digestive system does not do that. So this has sort of implications for for what we can grow, right? Like we can, what we should eat. We can't eat grass, but we can eat things that eat grass. Right. And when you have grasslands, you know, that lend themselves well to cropping because there's enough water, then, then by all means go ahead and grow crops. But there's huge areas of the earth's surface that are not like that. So you have to (laughs) kind of keep that in mind. It's one thing to make a dietary decision at the grocery store. And I think that's how most folks are used to thinking of it is what do I buy at the grocery store? But I work in agriculture, so I'm thinking, what do we do with this piece of land? And that's a very different call. So what what characteristics makes land appropriate for for the kind of crops that, that humans can actually eat? Well, you need it to be kind of flat. Orchards are an exception. They can be on hillier land. But to grow grain and most vegetables and fruit, you need to be pretty flat. Um, so if you're dealing with like rocky hill slopes, you're not going to have a whole lot of luck growing human crops. Again, if it's dry, you're not going to have a whole lot of luck growing crops. And in some places where it's very wet and swampy, I mean, livestock are also a challenge, but crops are not going to happen. So basically any landform that's not a rolling plain. A, a, a lot of people around the world obviously live in land, live on land that's not a rolling plain. Does this, does yeah. this affect the, the kind of things that people in those parts of the world may eat? Um, so there we're getting into the whole, there's an unspoken assumption there of local diets, isn't there? Very possibly. It's, it's not so much unspoken, <laughs> it's kind of uh, unconscious, so it's difficult for me to tell, but yeah, please, please explain. Yeah, I live in North America, and North America is in this really unique position where we have more land and water than we have people, which if you look globally, that's a very rare situation. I mean, try and get Europe on a local diet, good luck, right? Holland is probably the only country there, and, and to some extent Spain, that can actually grow enough food to feed, you know, folks in Europe. You know, they were growing at that level of intensity, and Holland makes it work with livestock by importing soybeans from the U.S., right? 
So I think in some ways, you know, the local food movement has been really, really healthy. It gets us thinking about our food chains in different ways. But in other ways, it's kind of just blinded us to the fact that some things don't grow well in some places. And if you want to talk a sustainable diet that's actually going to feed as many people as live there, then you can't do local food. So, again, there's this translation between what do we do with this piece of land and what do I personally buy at the grocery store? And that's mediated through distribution. And I think folks have really been trained by the way we talk about food to really want everything, every discussion about food to end in. So here's what you should buy. And I'm not going to do that. And I think that's what freaks people out because I work in agriculture. I don't work in food distribution. I don't work in marketing. So there's not some kind of product I'm pushing on you. I'm just telling folks how farms work, right? So it's a very different conversation. So, I mean, I think the sort of the, the, the subtext of, of that of that thread that, that got us here was that the word sustainability possibly doesn't mean quite what people think it does sometimes. You know, vegans can can from time to time be kind of militant about it. And there have been times when they've, in animal rights folks, have put into place laws that actually prevent indigenous people who've depended on a meat based diet because of where they live from actually being able to do that. So say if you're at the pole in a polar community, you depend on something like reindeer herding or you depend on hunting marine wildlife, right? And you can either do that or you can be dependent on welfare that ships in food that doesn't work for your biology and you're trapped in poverty. Those are your only two options. And so if you're talking to folks in these polar communities and this isn't a hypothetical. There are actually polar communities in Canada who have been affected by seal hunting bans that were put into place by animal rights activists. So this isn't a hypothetical. This is real stuff that's happened. And these laws can be the difference between sustainability and poverty and welfare dependence and disease for these communities. So it's not a hypothetical. This is real stuff that's happened. If you're an indigenous community where you don't have a great linkage with the global economy, then imported food, you know, and biology wise is not going to work out for you. So we need to stop talking like it's a blanket statement. There are, you know, some situations and circumstances where a plant based diet is not workable. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. 
So can I just spell out the line of logic to kind of check I've got this? It's that there are there are certain environments in which we can't grow crops that people can eat, but we can grow crops that animals can eat, and then we can eat the animals. Yes. I mean, something else you kind of touched on in the thread is that you can see this in, in terms of early civilizations and the different way they developed. Do you want to kind of unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, you look at the ancient Middle East, you know, Mesopotamia, Anatolia, Greece, those kinds of places. And they had some very different landforms. They had the folks in the fertile river valleys in the in the Mesopotamia area. And then you had nomads on the steppes just outside of that. And there were some interesting cultural conflicts, you know, coming out of that. You know, folks in the rivers farmed and folks in the steppes outside didn't have access to irrigation water. And they were in a dry area, so they didn't farm. They herded animals. There was some trade. You know, the nomads bought grain from the, the farmers and the farmers would buy meat from the herders. And to some extent, there was peaceful exchange and sometimes it was more of a conquest exchange. At the same time that all that was going on, you had places like Italy and Greece. And these places are very dry and very rocky. So, again, um, being dry and rocky are great preconditions for not growing grain, right? But they were fantastic places to grow olive trees and to grow grapevines. And so the Greeks and Romans really specialized in producing wine and olive oil for export. And you know, I feel like we talk about long-distance food trade like it's a new development. It's been going on for thousands of years. They traded olive oil and, and wine to Mesopotamia and to ancient Greece in exchange for grain. And Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt were trading with other nomads around them for livestock. This is something that's going on for thousands of years, and it's a very natural part of human behavior. And it's just a recognition that not every land type is good for everything. So the local food unit has kind of biffed that one. But uh, if you're talking long-term historical perspective and agricultural science, I mean, there it is. I'm from England. If we were entirely dependent on food, we could grow locally. My diet would be very, very depressing. Yeah. Well, and that brings up a really interesting point where we're talking about North America. So, you know, English North America was mostly colonized by folks from Britain. And there were certain foodways and there were certain things that people were used to eating and knew how to grow. And it was really based on a wet, soggy climate like you have in England. And you bring it to eastern North America and the Midwest and it works out fine. But when we started to move into more arid areas, those ways of farming just fell apart. I mean, again, we saw that with the Dust Bowl. That was basically when you transplant English farming to Texas. <laughs> it doesn't work out. So um, uh, American agriculture has really been dependent on immigrants from other areas to make things grow for that reason, because so many of the landowners were from an English background, and that just doesn't work with our land. So uh, that's led to some interesting stuff. Com- complete the picture for us with the Dust Bowl stuff. How did how did, how did the, the that part of the states get out of that mess? Like, what was it that, that kind of fixed that problem? Um, a lot of the folks who've been trying to farm left. That's how we fixed it. I think if you go to those areas now, it's primarily cattle ranching. Uh, growing crops on soil, just like annual crops like corn, you know, wheat, things like that, or vegetables, it burns up organic matter. You know, there's, there's organic matter in the soil, and you can put cover crops in there to put some organic matter back, but that takes a lot of time out of when the soil can be productive. Uh, bottom line, you want your soil to have a lot of organic matter in it because it acts like a sponge. So if you have a tight clay soil, it kind of loosens it up. And if you have a loose, sandy soil, it kind of gives a little bit more uh, cohesion and oof. So the best way to get organic matter in the soil is to graze animals on it. Um, again, cover crops kind of work, but compared to a grazing break, it's it's not as good. So you'll hear something from the vegetarian community quite a bit. There's a very popular talking point that if a cow eats something, only 10% of it becomes food. Like a, if you feed 100 calories to a cow, it produces 10 calories of meat. 
And that's because the other 90 calories drops out the back end, right? So if you're looking from a strict in this moment production of food perspective, then grazing cattle, a cow on a piece of land is not as productive. But if you're talking long-term maintenance of the soil and we want to have this land being producing good yields year after year after year, you need to give it some breaks. And grazing with cattle is a fantastic way to do that and rebuild soil organic matter very quickly. I've had experiences with farms in, you know, same county, same weather, same soil, 20 minutes apart. We're farms that don't do this. Their soil's just sand and it's like it's white, like it's a beach. And the farmers are depressed because they're not making any money because crops won't grow. And you go 20 minutes down the road to a guy who's actually doing pasture breaks and his soil looks like chocolate cake and it's holding water and his crops are doing great and he's happy and he's not depressed. It makes a tremendous difference. So the fact that we have a lot of folks who are big fans of agriculture and big proponents of plant-based diets, but they don't realize that that's a thing. I mean, that's a big gap in knowledge. And these are consumers who are trying to drive, you know, agricultural trends without a full basis of information. So that's the soil half. So is, is the point that livestock aren't just there so that we can eat these tasty cows. It's also like it's kind of necessary to keep the soil in a state where, it, where you can grow crops. Yeah, they're kind of like biological lawnmowers and soil tenders. Sure. Okay, so t- tell me more about cows. All right, so the cow bit is where it gets fun. So you know, there's there's a bit of a craze for grass-fed cattle right now. So again, one of the top modes of feedback that I got from that thread was, well, don't you know cattle live in feedlots? Have you never been to the Midwest? You know, I, I only lived in the Midwest for five years, and my first job was detasseling corn, so thank you for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I'm aware. Thank you. But what I find is feedlots are the one thing that people know about raising livestock. You say livestock, they hear feedlot, right? Uh, what folks don't know is a feedlot is only the last four to six months of an animal's life. They're just kind of trying to put on some extra poundage. There's a whole year and a half to two or three years before that that's not on a feedlot. So when we hear raising cattle and we hear feedlot, that is in some ways appropriate, and it's in some ways incredibly inaccurate, right? The stages before that, so there's three stages in a, in a beef cow's life cycle. And again, I kind of primarily taught cattle because that's our, our main form of ruminant livestock in the U.S. I mean, this stuff all applies to sheep and goats as well. Just So there's three stages in the beef life cycle. The first is you're born and you hang out on open range with your mom cow. There are farms that just run mom cows and collect the baby cows once they're weaned and send them on. These are called ranches. That's what a ranch is. It's kind of drier range places. Hmm? So a cow kindergarten is a ranch, right, basically? Yeah, and these tend to be in kind of the driest areas that you can raise cattle in because fully mature adult mom cows are really great at turning gross scrub into something that's nutritious for a calf, right? You don't want to try and run young cattle on poor land because they're not going to thrive. But if they have a mom cow there to translate that stuff into milk, then these young cattle will grow quite well in arid rangelands. And there's a lot that you can do to manage those rangelands really well or really poorly. And running cattle in arid areas got a really bad reputation because, again, folks were using British cattle raising methods in a desert. And that went really poorly. But if you use desert appropriate range uh, growing methods, what you do is you wind up adding organic matter to the soil. You wind up encouraging more grasses to grow instead of just scrub. And so you actually start getting land that's more productive if you do it properly. Um, It's just that we kind of came from an English based farming background where that's never been an issue we never had to learn how to do it in deserts and so folks just started doing stuff the english way in arizona and it went very poorly but thank heavens we have better ways to do things now and and ranchers are starting to adopt that so that's your that's your stage one of the cow life cycle is you're born on a ranch right 
Your second stage is you, you typically get shipped to some kind of wetter grasslands once you're weaned with a bunch of fellow teenage cows and you just graze for a while. That's called the stalker stage. This is also considered a ranch. Um, and a lot of ranchers will say, yeah, I do grass fed cattle, but they're really just doing the stalker stage. So they're not changing anything. Right. Um, they're just using a different name for what they've been doing the entire time. And then your third stage, this is the coup de grace in cattle rearing is if you can fish cattle on grass as opposed to grain. It's completely possible. It's completely doable. It's just that raising them on grain is a lot more cookbook friendly. You shovel grain in, you shovel poop out. It's not easy, but it's simple. In order to finish, you know, a beef animal, what we're, what we're trying to accomplish is get them to gain weight rapidly enough that they're getting some fat marbling inside their muscles. And for that to happen, the animal has to gain two pounds or about a kilogram every day. You can't have any days when they're kind of short on food. You, you know, it's just every time they're hungry, there has to be food right there. And if it has to be very high quality feed ready to go. Grain is very simple. You just shovel it in. If you're doing it with grass, you have to kind of keep like a rolling conveyor belt of grass growing on your farm at all times. And you have to keep in mind, OK, in a month, they're actually going to weigh more. So I need to have more ready then, that kind of thing. So it's a lot more complex. So there's been a preference for doing it by grain just because it's simpler, not because it's more effective. But we're seeing that it's been very destructive. So when people talk about grass-fed cattle, ideally that's what they're talking about. Sometimes they're just being a little cheeky and referring to the stalker stage and they still finish it on, on grain. But that's the ideal is you're able to get cattle on that two pounds of weight gain a day just by giving them grass. Is that all kind of making sense? Yes. No, this is this is fascinating. I don't sorry, I'm not I'm not diving in with any questions because I don't know much about this. And so my questions would be like, you know, I, 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 I resisted the urge to use the phrase cow university because I didn't think that would be very helpful to, uh, for the discourse. But yes, no, this is this, so to kind of circle back to where we where we started from. How, what's the where does all this kind of fit into the sort of to the soil bit of the picture? So when cattle eat something, they poop it back out like most of it goes back out of the ground. They extract a little bit of it for for growth. So then that poop is sitting there on the ground. And um, if you have a healthy grassland growing, you also have a lot of dung beetles that come and they dig little holes and they pull it into the ground. So you have kind of an automatic cleanup crew. So you're not having runoff from all that dung. It's going straight into the soil and it's kind of pre-broken down. So it becomes organic matter very quickly as opposed to um, sometimes cover crops take a long time to break down. So that's that's a difference there. And if, if you're in a really dry climate, Cover crops are never going to break down. So cattle is really your only chance to break this plant material down into something that's going to be productive in the soil again. So so grazing cows is, is, is a way of kind of keeping soil productive, really. Yeah, like smart grazing of cattle. I, I don't want to say grazing period because there's so many ways to do it wrong. And uh, we've all kind of seen the side effects of that. But smart grazing of cattle is such a fantastic tool for soil health. And I wish folks understood that better because, like, I get why we need to go towards more plant-based diets, but eliminating animals from, you know, the food chain is not going to help us out a whole lot. So instead of talking about eliminating, we should be talking more like, hey, you know, let's eat animals in about the same ratio as our land naturally supports it in a healthy crop livestock swap cycle. And that's going to be different in every location. And no, I don't have math. <laughs> So where do you think this kind of one-size-fits-all idea of, of, of how, how sustainable agriculture works, where does, it, where does it come from? Like, is there a geographical bias here? Oh, yeah, there's certainly like a Eurocentric bias there because that's where it's really wet and that's where we got these growing techniques from. And so that's just how farming works in the minds of folks who are doing the writing. There's not a whole lot of looking outside that, that box. 
The other thing is, I mean, you got to be honest, most of our food writing has come from chefs and journalists who have no training in agriculture. So why would they know this stuff? As an agricultural scientist, that's something that I'm trying to change. Because again, chefs and journalists, they know what they do very, very well. We all know our thing very well, but there's a whole bunch of systematic stuff that they don't know about because they don't work in agriculture. So I, I want to get some firsthand information out there. And some of the cool stuff that we actually do that's not discussed out there. I think the third thing is just that it's really simple message. And it's one that people can remember. And it's one that's easy to pitch to your editor. You know, uh, George Orwell wrote Animal Farm. And um, what they really had was a very complex sociopolitical situation. And they boiled it all down into a, a four-word slogan, four legs good, two legs bad. And uh, I think that just kind of reflects a bit of a facet of human nature is we want things to be simple and comprehensible. I get why. I like that as well. But uh, when you live life like that and make all your decisions like that, it can get you into some weeds. So I love I love the idea that this has come out of the fact that this this model, this vegetarian model kind of works well in northwest Europe and that the whole vegetarian movement is in its way a form of European imperialism. It's just quite funny. Yeah, well, it's it's very Orientalist in a way, because, you know, you had um, a lot of contact with South Asia and Eastern Asia, which are almost, if not entirely, vegetarian cultures. So Europe kind of had this encounter with these regions and got really fascinated with the East and decided to pick up a lot of the habits. And I think vegetarianism is a bit of that. We had our own kind of very low meat tradition in Europe. Uh, medieval peasants did not eat a lot of meat. There was some dairy and a lot of gruel. So that's something that kind of was a little bit relatable, I think, to the incoming Europeans. And then a lot of cultures in Asia really emphasized it in a way that wasn't necessarily done in Europe. You know, it just happened in Europe. So, you know, Europeans colonize Asia and they get really fascinated by some of the stuff and bring it back home. And um, it kind of combines with European culture in some interesting ways and some Orientalism. And next thing you know, we've got vegans telling indigenous people that they're doing the wrong thing. So surprisingly messed up this. I've never thought that like <laughs> vegetarianism <laughs> would be the thing that's kind of me helping mess up the planet um so like you say you well, no, I, wanna... I, don't think, I don't think there's enough vegetarians to actually make that happen yet and the thing is i actually got a, a lot of feedback from that thread of folks who like steak going cool so it's sustainable eat all the steak i'm like dude that's not what i said uh, <laughs> this is not a call for folks with a lot of money in like wealthy agricultural countries like the u.s to switch to an all-steak diet um, this is like, please leave the Inuit and the Mongols alone, you know. <laughs> so if anyone wants to learn more about about these topics, like, can can they get in touch with you? Uh, sure. You know, follow me on Twitter. It's um, at Sarah Tabor underscore BWW. Uh, there's a few Sarah Tabors on Twitter. If you just type in Sarah Tabor, you'll find us and you'll be able to tell which one is me. <laughs> there's also a podcast. It's currently hosted on SoundCloud called Farm to Tabor where we address some of these issues as well and more. So you can find me either one of those ways. Okay, well, I'm sure some people will, uh, will check that out. Thank you very much. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Have a good one. You've been listening to Skylines, a podcast from City Metric, the New Statesman City site. It was presented and produced by me, John Ellidge. If you enjoyed the episode, then please do consider leaving us an iTunes review. It really helps other people to discover the show. And, you know, the more people get listening to this show, the sooner I can achieve my real goal of world domination for the medium of trains. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.